So here we are again, and I think it's fair to say you all have been uh, immersed in the Brahma Viharas for the last day and a half. We've moved through metta and compassion. And this evening I'm going to share some thoughts and, is that too loud? No? Okay. Some thoughts and observances in relationship to mudita, or sympathetic, empathetic joy. <laughs> Time for some joy. <laughs> so uh, I hope you find your way there through some of these words. So you know, I found it very challenging, and Jill has spoken to this also, to, hold on, I'm going to move this down, because, to be able to speak about mudita without a little bit engaging the other Brahma Viharas, particularly Metta and Karuna. So from the Dika Nikaya, which is one of the Sutta books, one of the words, the Dhamma from the Buddha, in their perfection they are sublime and boundless and to be dwelt in as one speaks of dwelling in peace. Here, monks, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with his heart, filled with loving kindness, Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth direction, so above, below, and around. He dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with his heart filled with loving kindness, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. Here, monks, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with his heart filled with compassion. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth direction. So above, below, and around. He dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with his heart. Filled with compassion, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. Here, monastics, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with her heart, filled with sympathetic joy. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth direction. So above, below, and around, she dwells pervading the entire world, everywhere and equally, with her heart filled with sympathetic joy, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. Here, monastics, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with her heart filled with equanimity. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth direction, so above, below, and around. She dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with her heart filled with equanimity, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress.
Less has been said or written of Mudita than any of the other three of these four characteristics. Most probably because of its somewhat clumsy translation. While loving kindness and compassion are objective, reaching out to all sentient beings, mudita and equanimity are subjective or personal in their application. The third of the four Brahma-viharas, the practice of mudita, cultivating gladness or joy, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy or appreciative joy or altruistic joy. So you know I like the dictionary, right? Sympathetic, pleasant or agreeable, showing approval of or favor toward an idea or action. Appreciative, feeling or showing gratitude or pleasure. Altruistic, showing a disinterested and selfless concern for others, unselfishness. Empathetic, showing an ability to understand and share the feelings of another. These four practices, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, work together to strengthen and support and protect each other so that together they help the heart and the mind come into a state of profound balance. At the foundation is metta, which the other three qualities emerge from, and Jill kind of spoke to this, but just a reiteration, you know, a way of thinking about it is that actually these four Brahma-viharas are all iterations of love, right? So they're not separate entities. They're all iterations of love. When metta turns toward difficulty, it flowers naturally as compassion. And when metta turns towards what is going well or towards success, it flowers into mudita, or joy. We can get a sense that there is a relationship between compassion and joy. Joy can protect our compassion practice from falling into grief or despair. And compassion protects our mudita practice from falling into elation or ungrounded exuberance. As you can see, they're different flavors. That's the word that Jill used. That's a really good word. And they work together to balance each other out. A large part of the Buddha Dhamma is the awareness and understanding of the pairs of opposites in the training in order to move beyond them. The Buddha's method of mental training and development was to teach by first defining unwholesome or unskillful thoughts, words, and deeds, or practices, which characterize many of our human proclivities, and then to put forward their opposite considerations of a wholesome or skillful nature as an achievement to be sought after for the eventual transformation and letting go of them both, meaning the skillful and the unskillful, eventually. Eventually, when even the good must be left behind, as well as the evil, when even the raft of Dhamma is to be abandoned after crossing the flood of samsara. So we're starting to say that more and more, and I know I've been talking about it a bit in our individual meetings, Joe Paul, you know, that 
the practice is just the training ground to living in a particular way. And the goal is not to become expert at these various tools, but to come, become expert at creating a life that's free from suffering. The trouble for so many of us when we are being unskillful or unwise is the desire to abandon the raft of Dhamma before reaching the further shore. Like you'll drown if you'll do that. This is why it is so necessary that we should see and recognize our failings and shortcomings, our wrong views and perceptions, if we are to release or transform them. It is also important that we be mindful of the good that has arisen and to foster and develop it to the point of perfection. These four desirable characteristics are the antidotes to the poisons of their opposite imperfections. And here is where the recognition of their opposites is useful. We never tire of asserting the interdependency of every aspect of the Buddha Dhamma, no matter which particular facet is being discussed. One of my teachers, some of you know, I think some of you even did some training with her, Gina Sharp, speaks of the holographic nature of the Dhamma. So wherever you enter in, whatever resonates for you, whatever aspect of the Dhamma um, brings gladness and well-being to you, that's the one to cultivate. That's the one to, to engage with. We have already stated that ignorance is a failure of perception. And it is true that greed and hatred do arise through the non-seeing and non-understanding of perception. Therefore, the result is that basically craving born of ignorance is the culprit and that the purpose of the Buddha Dhamma is to eliminate craving. The purpose of the Buddha Dhamma is to eliminate craving. That's it in a nutshell. Everything that we're doing is towards that end. It is craving that gives rise to jealousy, envy, covetedness, avarice, and greed in all of its manifestations. Here it is that mudita, when practiced and developed, becomes a sublime and boundless state of mind to be dwelt in as a corrective characteristic for their removal. When the energetic qualities of metta and karuna are turned towards happiness, or the good things in life, what can arise is a happiness much greater than our own personal happiness. This is appreciative joy or sympathetic joy, the joy that is larger than our own, seeing how all beings are seeking happiness. When happiness arises for others, we automatically feel joy at their joy, happiness at their happiness. It is the happiness of seeing the 10,000 joys in our lives. We rejoice in the good fortune of others. An image that might be helpful to feel into this is the image of a dear friend who is smiling all the time.
the time. You know, I went um, last year, I think, yeah, was it last year? I went and did a retreat that's called the Lost Coast Retreat. So it happens in Northern California, and the only way you can get into the retreat center, I think Gil might have heard this story, I'm not sure. The only way you can get to the retreat center is to walk in eight miles. To walk in eight miles on the shore of the Pacific, I guess it is. So here I am, you know, uh, this New York gal, call myself training, <laughs> walking the cement blocks, getting ready, uh, hit six miles and I could do that. So I was like, okay, if I can do six miles, I can do eight. I, you know, my training's good, I can do eight. So a good friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine, um, was actually a little bit older than I. Um, we went and did this together, and one of the reasons we did it together is we said we were going to do this when we were 65, but we missed that, so <laughs> we did it this year, or last year, rather. Uh, so we got to this part of California, got all my gear. I even went and bought poles. I had the gear. I had everything. I was ready for this walk on the shore of the ocean for eight miles. So the first thing that happened is I think I got... <laughs> maybe a quarter of a mile in. <laughs> and I turned to my girlfriend, May is her name. I turned to May and I said, I can't do <laughs> It's not going to happen. Like the, the, the panic was welling up. This was just the beginning. So she talked me down off the ledge with her smiling face. And basically for the uh, rest of the trek, I was the last person. I was the last person. So it provided, um, there were 26 of us, and I was the last person. <laughs> provided a lot of opportunity for engaging with many of these unwholesome states of mind. But then after, uh, let's see, I think it was about mile six. And the other thing is, I was the last one. So even though we took three breaks, every time I got to them, they were standing up to keep going. <laughs> Like the person that needs the break the most. <laughs> so the last, uh, we walk and walk, and the last um, uh, the uh, six mile, hit the six mile, and this retreat was being facilitated by uh, Susie Harrington, who's one of our colleagues, um, and Aya Nandabodi, who was one of the nuns in, uh, in California. And um, Susie and Aya Nandabodi uh, really held me by being in conversation, or even when we went into silence, just walking beside me. But here we are at the end of the walk. There's only another mile and a half left. And there was this, we came upon this sheer cliff that you had to get over to get to the meadow, to get to the, so this is at, already after six miles. And there's this sheer cliff. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I, there's just... So I walk up to the cliff, and uh, there's a gentleman there, reaches his hand down, and he says, I got you, come on. I said, you sure? I'm a big girl. Are you sure you're going to be able to do this? And he's like, yeah, I can help you. But here's the joy. So he's pulling, I'm stepping, and kneeing, and then I'm really trying to scramble up this, this cliff. And Aya Nanda Bodhi comes behind me, and she says, I'm going to put my hand on your butt and push. <laughs> So it was through collaborative effort <laughs> uh, and a lot of laughter 
um, that I got over this last hump uh, to make the, uh, so that's a kind of a uh, nice story about Mudita and sympathetic joy. <laughs> Mudita invites us to look at the non-problem rather than the problems in our life. This can be challenging given the strong conditioning in our culture towards being focused on the problems or what is broken or wrong. This is part of our journey, assisted by our practice, to recondition the heart and incline it towards freedom. The far enemy of mudita is envy. Mudita can be more difficult to cultivate than metta or karuna. Envy is the offspring of the comparing mind. What feeds the comparing mind and the energy of envy is the practice of conceit, the practice of selfing, and feeling that everything revolves around ourself, or at least should revolve around it. The logical thought behind envy is that anyone who can do better than oneself is one's enemy. Mudita, however, is the opposite of comparing and competition. In our competitive culture, we cannot see the true nature of mudita because we are so ingrained with thinking ourselves as separate entities. We become primarily concerned with our own survival. The practice of joy often can bring up feelings of not deserving happiness, low self-esteem. When we cannot experience joy, then how can anyone else experience joy without bringing up envy and competition? The near enemy of mudita is exuberant. From the words of the Buddha, not only to compassion, but also to joy with others, open your heart. One's life will gain in joy by sharing the happiness of others as if it were ours. Did you never observe how in moments of happiness a person's features change and become bright with joy? Did you ever notice how joy rouses us to noble aspirations and deeds exceeding their normal capacity? Did not such experience fill your own heart with joyful bliss? It is in your power to increase such experience of sympathetic joy by producing happiness in others, by bringing them joy and solace. Sympathetic joy means a sublime nobility of heart and intellect which knows, understands, and is ready to help. Sympathetic joy that is strength and gives strength. This is the highest joy. And what is the highest manifestation of sympathetic joy? to show to the world the path leading to the end of suffering, the path pointed out, trodden, and realized to perfection by him, the exalted one, the Buddha. Joy is natural to an open heart. 
we do not have unwise understanding that it is disloyal to the suffering of the world to honor the happiness we've been given. Joy gladdens the heart. We can be joyful for people we love, for moments of goodness, for sunlight and trees, for breath. When Jill and I were walking back this morning after the sit, we were noticing how each day there's more and more dandelions and I don't know if they're little daisies. I'm not sure they look like daisies, but the dandelions and little daisies. So this morning, Jill said, oh, look, every time we walk across this field, there's more and more dandelions and, and daisies. And then I said, yeah, and then, you know, the bunnies, they can get fat and really have a good time as they're eating all of this good food. And then we said, oh, and then, the, you know, this place. However, I will tell you that I have joy walking the city streets and seeing that one little dandelion <laughs> that's coming up through the cracks of the cement or walking down Broadway and looking west and seeing the reflection of the sun off the high rises such that they look like they're on fire. So I don't want to delude us that this expanse and intensity of nature is the only place that we can find nature, that we can find joy. Mudita is boundless, like loving kindness. Impediments to Mudita, judgment, comparing, prejudice, demeaning, envy, avarice, or selfishness, boredom, boredom, boredom. Been hearing a lot about that. Impediments to sympathetic joy, judgment, it is all too easy to believe or even insist that other people should behave just as we want them to, that they should pursue lifestyles and sources of happiness in precisely the ways we deem appropriate. With this orientation, no wonder we find it difficult to be happy for the countless people we could never control. We may feel disgruntled and frustrated with others as they simply go about living their lives. To be non-judgmental means having flexibility of mind and the ability to let go of our attachment to what seems right to us. Can we uphold and celebrate others' happiness as a priority over our own righteousness? Sympathetic joy is non-judgmental. It slices through our predilection to force the world to accord with our views. A certain element of discernment is important here as well. People may delude themselves into thinking they're doing something that will bring them happiness when they are actually creating unhappiness for themselves or for others. If noticing this in relationship, it might be that in that instance or that moment of seeing that, mudita may not be the thing to offer. Might be metta or compassion. But whatever it is, it's not an interference in the journey that they're on. Sometimes we might perceive that they're actually miserable or setting themselves up to be. But... If people are genuinely happy in their choice of action or lifestyle, we don't need to impose our standards. If they're not harming themselves, if they're not harming others, 
Can we be generous enough to feel joy for them? That is the practice of mudita. Comparing is another impediment to mudita. Comparing ourselves to others is a very powerful mental affliction. In Buddhist psychology, it is called conceit. When we are enmeshed in conceit, we are pulled outside ourselves, trying to know who we are and what our experience is by comparing ourselves to others. Who am I in reference to that? Am I good enough in comparison to that? Whether we conclude that we are better than, worse than, or equal to another, when we measure ourselves against others, it causes us harm. As we constantly try to decide through comparison with others who we are, what is important about us, whether or not we are happy, that churning of the mind in itself undermines our Comparison or conceit is annoying, painful restlessness. It can never bring us to peace because there is no end to the possibilities for comparison. When the battle is an inner one, meaning within ourselves, over who is inherently better or worse, who is happier and more deserving, we are setting ourselves up to lose. In practicing sympathetic joy, rather than looking at others in order to define ourselves, we begin by recognizing that we indeed deserve to be happy. The willingness to feel goodwill only towards those we like is a powerful impediment to developing sympathetic joy. Crossing that line of discrimination from people we like to people we dislike can be very difficult. When someone we love experiences loss, blame, or conflict, we can easily feel angry and upset. We can also feel anger when someone we do not like experiences prosperity or praise or happiness in their lives. Can we also imagine even the possibility of actually feeling some joy for the person whom we do not like when they are experiencing a moment of happiness? Like metta, mudita too is boundless. It is through compassion that we begin to extend sympathetic joy beyond our prejudices. Compassion reminds us that everyone suffers. Since that is true, do we really want some person whom we do not like to experience only more suffering? What would such a wish mean in terms of what we value in our minds and hearts? As Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Everyone's life is by nature 
continually vulnerable to pain. Remembering this is our gateway to mudita. Another impediment to practicing mudita is to be demeaning. We may look at someone else's achievements or someone else's happiness and find ourselves wishing that their status or condition might be diminished, as if that their own would be diminishing ours. This attitude of diminishing the happiness of others is based on considering happiness as a resource or commodity. Then, when someone else has more, there is less for me. When we view reality in that way, the more someone else has, the less we can have, then certainly it is easy to feel the threat of deprivation. We can become resentful and embittered and feel the need to demean others. When we feel that there is a fixed or static amount of good things in life, we must constantly compete for them. Unfortunately, if you take a look and listen to that, that's kind of one of the underpinnings of our culture. You know, so we can look at all that we've been learning and teaching and engaging with for ourselves on the macro level as well. And that's why there's the hope that as more and more of us engage with this for the transformation towards well-being and freedom for ourselves, it will emanate out and eventually cause something different to happen in the world. Envy is another impediment to mudita. The inability to endure the success, prosperity, or happiness of others. It absolutely hates to see things in other people. The experience of envy only functions to produce more and more dissatisfaction with our own conditions and to make us quite miserable. Envy is often based on illusion. It is a very destructive quality, and if it grows to be very strong, it is easy for us to try to hurt someone. There's many ways to hurt direct. How much easier to simply be happy for the happiness of others, knowing that this gives rise to our own happiness. Two more. You see what you got to wade through to practice mudita? Avarice or selfishness, another impediment, is a quality whereby one seeks to hold on to and conceal what one has in order to avoid sharing it with others. In the presence of avarice, sharing is impossible. Avarice manifests as meanness and contraction in the mind, and is characterized by extreme possessiveness and attachment. It does not want others to hear or know about something that is bringing us happiness. Least we have to share it. Avarice causes tremendous pain. There is no peace. In this state, we are constantly looking around on guard to hide what we have so that no one else can experience its benefits. The roots of envy and avarice are aversion towards others and attachment 
to objects, both material and abstract. The gladness, which is the essence of sympathetic joy, uproots envy and avarice as the mind fills with the qualities of light and appreciation for others and the wish for them. <clears throat> Last one. It is said that mudita also eliminates boredom. Boredom is based on a sense of separation and the turning away that we feel when we experience certain degrees of aversion. When we stop paying attention to the little things in life and the little things in our meditation practice, we find ourselves in a state of boredom. By reconnecting to the little things, we awaken again to a delightful kind of openness. Taking the time to marvel at a little flower as it creeps up. We can feel joy even though we are aware that this planet is in a very severe ecological crisis. Despite the hatred and monstrous egoism evident in some human actions, remembering the fortitude, courage, and love people are capable of can awaken our appreciation. When we are touched by things, moved by the actions of people, we open to what is around us. When we feel happy for others, we feel happy and connected to ourselves. The separation and dullness of boredom is dissolved. Attending to the small things in front of us becomes a way of self-renewal and self-refreshment. If we simply feel the miracle present, a kind of appreciation grows along with a kind of joy. So just as there are impediments for the expression of mudita, there are also allies of mudita. Those qualities that support mudita are rapture, gratitude, metta, and compassion. They all share their origin in our basic goodness, and they form a potent team to reduce suffering and to bring happiness. Mudita depends on rapture, on our capacity to take active delight in things. And this depends upon our ability to actually let ourselves feel joy. We have to let go of feeling guilty about our own happiness or feeling threatened that it will be taken from us. We do good because it frees the heart. It opens us to a wellspring of happiness. Another ally of mudita is gratitude. Gratitude brings delight. If we want to strengthen qualities such as wisdom, equanimity, concentration, rapture, or mudita, it is good to spend some time with those who also exhibit these qualities. By supporting them, it supports us. Buddha calls it the greatest happiness to know peace unchanged by changing conditions. We are profoundly blessed when we have a mind that remains unshaken when it is touched by all of the changes 
of the world. All of the joys and sorrows as they continually fluctuate. So counting our blessings, cultivating gratitude and happiness in us, which opens us up to joy when others are blessed. As Mudita grows, we see that the happiness of others is our happiness. They are not different. Thus, Mudita strengthens metta. Another ally of Mudita, rapture. Our capacity to take active delight in things. Gratitude brings delight and blessings. The Buddha teaches about blessings and that they can be enjoyed by any one of us if we create. So, metta, karuna, and mudita create a powerful alliance to brighten our minds and add a richness and joy to our perceptions. We can more and more open to the happiness that exists and we can see the suffering that exists as well and maintain an open heart in the face of it. As these three Brahmaviharas share their strengths with one another, the bright forces of mind support us and help us to own. So now I'm going to go in a slightly different direction, related to Mudita, because when you hear this and when you know this, you know that none of this matters anyway. The cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to itself. Carl Sagan. Song of the Star. I am nothing but oxygen and hydrogen a luminous sphere of plasma held together by helium and gravity. And like a balloon, I float on earth, waiting to be released back into the sky, waiting to go back in the reverse direction from which I come. Traveling through a warm tunnel of light and out into a dark, cold abyss, where I will explode into a thousand pieces. I shall leave my body behind, just like air abandons the skin of a shattered balloon. And the magnetic dust that carries my heart and spirit will lift us back to congregate and shine with the stars. Home again, in the fluorescent kingdom of the constellations, I will once again be called by my soul's true name and my heart. It will flip with every memory from its many lifetimes and with every wish made by a child. We are all made of stardust. It sounds like a line from a poem, but there is some solid science behind this statement too. Almost every element on earth was formed at the heart of a star. Next time you're out gazing at stars twinkling in the night sky, spare a thought for the tumultuous reactions they play host to. 
it's easy to forget that stars owe their light to the energy released by nuclear fusion reactions at their cores. These are the very same reactions which created chemical elements like carbon or iron, the building blocks which make up the world around us. After the Big Bang, tiny particles bound together to form hydrogen and helium. As time went on, young stars formed when clouds of gas and dust gathered under the effect of gravity, heating up as they became denser. At the star's cores, bathed in temperatures of over 10 million degrees centigrade, hydrogen and then helium nuclei fused to form heavier elements, a reaction known as nucleosynthesis. This reaction continues in stars today as lighter elements are converted into heavier ones. Relatively young stars, like our sun, convert hydrogen to produce helium just like the first stars of our universe. Once they run out of hydrogen, they begin to transform helium into beryllium and carbon. As these heavier nuclei are produced, they too are burnt inside stars to synthesize heavier and heavier elements. Different sized stars play host to different fusion reactions eventually forming everything from oxygen to iron. During a supernova, when a massive star explodes at the end of its life, the resulting high energy environment enables the creation of some of the heaviest elements, including iron and nickel. The explosion also disperses the different elements across the universe, scattering the star dust, which now makes up our planets, including Earth. The amazing thing is that every atom in our body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. We are all stardust. We couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into our body as if those stars were kind enough to explode. The stars died so that we could be here today. Lawrence Krauss, from a universe from nothing. Mahagosananda says, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what good? Let's sit a while. Thank you for your listening.
an offering around gratitude. I receive all of life with thanksgiving. I have gratitude for everything, everything that has ever occurred to bring me to this moment. I give thanks for the joys and the suffering, the moments of peace and the flashes of anger, the indifference, the roar of my courage and the cold fear. I accept gratefully the entirety of my past and my present life. Jonathan. And to send us out into the night, another something, some lightness, so that the sad is not so bad. And the my ancestry DNA results came in. Just as I suspected, my great-great-grandfather was a monarch butterfly. <laughs> Much of who I am is still wriggling under a stone. I am part larva, but part hummingbird, too. There is dinosaur tar in my bone marrow. My golden hair sprang out of a meadow in Pine. Genghis Khan is my fourth cousin, but I didn't get his dimples. My loins are loaded with banyan seeds from Sri Lanka, but I descended from Ravana, not Ram. My uncle is a mastodon. There are traces of Viking people in my saliva. 3.7 billion years ago, I swirled in the golden dust, dreaming of a planet overgrown with lingams and yonis. More recently, say 60,000 BC, I walked on hairy paws across a land bridge joining Sweden to Botswana. I am the bastard of the sun and moon. I can no longer hide my heritage of raindrops and cougar scat. I am made of your grandmother's tears. You conquered rival tribesmen of your own color, chained them together, marched them naked to the coast, and sold them to colonials from Savannah. I was that brother you sold. I was the slave trader. I was the chain. Admit it. You have wings, vast and golden, like mine. You have sweat, black and salty, like mine. You have secrets silently singing in your blood, line. Don't pretend that earth is not one family. Don't pretend we never hung from the same branch. Don't pretend we don't ripen on each other's. Don't pretend we didn't come here to forgive.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.